Welcome to Big Bear Christian Center Sermon Audio. Join Pastor Jeff Tunnel in progress as he expounds on the book of Amos. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They've all together become unprofitable. There's none who does good. No, not one. That's the word of the Lord. Paul's writing it in the book of Romans, but he's bringing it to us from back in the Psalms and telling us that when we have that first confrontation with God, when we have that first moment where we stand in his presence and we realize he's alive, he's holy and we're not, we're in trouble, (laughs) right? There's trouble there because unholy man doesn't stand in the presence of a holy God very long, not very long at all. So I want to invite you this morning If you recognize this morning that you're singing about a holy God and you're not, there's hope for you. That's why we gather. There's good news. The good news is Jesus Christ, God's only son, came to earth, lived as a man, was tempted as a man, overcame as a man, went to the cross as a man and God, and there took our sins upon the cross. Someone said this this week. It's such an impacting statement to me. God did not Jesus did not die for you. He died as you. I'd never heard that. Jesus did not die for you. He died as you. When he was on the cross, he took your sins, my sins, and he nailed them there once forever. And the blood that flowed that day was the blood of redemption. He gave his life. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, right? And all of us, how many have not sinned? There's never a hand on that one. I mean, we recognize we're sinners. We're separated from God by our sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Please feel free. I probably left them back there wondering. What do we do now? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's holy. We're not. We're in trouble. He wants us to come across that gulf. He wants to say to you, I died in your place. I died for you. I died as you. I took your sins, and I nailed them to the cross forever. They never will again be remembered against you. But you have to receive that by faith, don't you? You have to say, Jesus, be my Savior. Jesus, be my Lord. So I'm going to invite us right now, before we go any further, to take care of that business right here in his house together. Would that be all right? Christians are praying. Amen. Let's bow our heads together, and if you would like to invite Christ to be your Savior, pray this simple prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I acknowledge before you, the Holy Son of God, that I am a sinner. I recognize even in this moment that I'm separated from you by my sin, but I've also heard that you took my sin to the cross, nailed it there forever, that I might be saved. I pray today, Jesus, be my Savior. Come into my life. Make me new. Do what only a holy God can do and impart to me your life and your holiness. I desire from this day forward to live for you. I sang those songs earlier and I really didn't understand them. When I said I was offering my entire self to you, now I get it. I offer you my life. You gave yours for me. I give mine back to you. Jesus, thank you for saving me today. 
Thank you for giving me the gift of eternal life. I pray you will fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me a hunger for your word that I might live in eternity forever with you. Thank you. Amen. Amen. I remember explaining that to my stepfather as he was laying in bed dying. He wanted to know what happens. What's next? And I said, you, God will listen to you if you pray this prayer and you come to him. He'll hear you. And nobody has to help you. You can do it all by yourself when no one's around. Would you like me to pray with you now? He said, no, no, I, I think I've got it. And I thought, boy, I hope so. And I left. I came back the next day. He was the happiest I'd ever seen him. He wanted to get out of bed. He wanted to play tennis. He wanted to eat. He hadn't eaten in about four or five days. He was dying. And that last surge of life came. I'll get this figured out. You keep hoping for me. It'll work. You're thinking, he's going to get that figured out. Yeah. So we talked about playing tennis. We talked about eating. and Within a matter of hours, he died. And I think of that scripture talking about making it by the skin of your teeth. He's there. You could just see in his face that he had decided to talk to God when no one was around. And God was ready to listen. I say that hopefully. But I say it with confidence because the Bible says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. So if you prayed that prayer this morning, you need to tell somebody you did it. You need to go home and live in the joy that Jesus gives you and make a difference for his kingdom. All right. And all you Christians who are praying with us, hey, if it's just for one, right, what does the Bible say? When one comes to the Lord, there is a party in heaven. All the angels in heaven rejoice when just one sinner returns to Christ. And uh, I have my own theory. It's extra biblical on that. I don't mind sharing it at all. I believe the reason that the angels rejoice is because they finally get a day off. <laughs> you see, up until that moment, there's been angels assigned to you to keep you alive until you got to the point where you accepted Christ. And finally, you're, if you die today, you're going to heaven. So it's, man, I got the day off. Hallelujah. I'm doing this for eternity. Today I don't have to watch you. If you die, you're in. Not a problem. And you look back over your life, all the times there were those narrow misses, especially as much as we drive the mountains, huh? It's like, whew, that had to be an angel, and he was awfully thin <laughs> to get between me and that rock or me and that other car or whatever it was. Well, if you're visiting this morning, my name's Jeff. I used to preach here occasionally. Pastor Rob and his family are off in, uh, in Las Vegas having a vacation. It always sounds kind of odd to announce that. <laughs> Pastor's in Las Vegas on vacation. He's raising the income of the church. No, he's not. Actually, someone very graciously donates a, a timeshare to them to bless them for a vacation week. And I think that's awesome. Hey, we say we pray for him right now. 
Lord, we ask that you would bless Pastor Rob and Shannon and their family. Lord, that you would just settle down over them today as they're getting in place and they're deciding what they want to do with this week. I just pray that you would descend upon them with your peace. God, that you would bring them rest in the spirit. You would bring them rest in their souls and refreshment in their bodies. Lord, as you lead them and guide them in this week of recreation, recreation, fun, building family memories, I pray that they would feel your presence on a daily basis. God, in your strength, they would return and with a freshness about them as they lead us in the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I've picked a short passage this morning to preach, and I'll announce that in a moment if you haven't read the sign out front. Um, if you did, you're probably still wondering, what is an Amos bomb? But I'm, before we start, I want to ask you to imagine with me that you were with me this week when I was sitting with a group of pastors, and into that pastor's meeting walked a, uh, a rancher, if you will, from Lucerne Valley, unknown to us, and he came in and he began to tell us all the things that our community had done that had offended God. He began to announce to us that there would be judgment that would fall on Big Bear and that we, had, looking at the lake drying up, should recognize that this is actually the hand of God against us and that the blessing of God is not upon us even in nature because of the foulness of our lifestyle, because of the disappointment that we were living before God, because we had separated ourselves from his covenant ways, because we had disregarded his scripture, because we had decided that blessing and prosperity was actually a mark of his attendance upon us when actually all it was was just the result of better technology and harder work it wasn't really his blessing prosperity was not necessarily the mark of God's presence with us and that if we would look around we would actually see that he was withdrawing his presence from us that there was a weakness even in the body of Christ what do you think about this rancher so far Hmm? Very insightful. Anybody else want to add a comment about this rancher from the Lucerne Valley? Well, he was, yeah, right. Okay. The whole, the whole state's in trouble with God. Amen. Amen. Oh, I love I love this feistiness in you. <laughs> Praise God, this is good. You're right, Jewel. You're right, and that is that is so true. I mean, the body of Christ is still within His care. Amen. Amen. Well, I didn't get that far yet, so I, 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 pa I paused and said, what do you think so far? And you're telling me, so yes, sir, your, your comments. Scripture says that judgment begins with the house of God. Mm -hmm. 
and I think it's a, uh, uh, an opportunity to examine our own lives and just think of how we walk. Amen. Amen. He, he, uh, oh, yes, sir. <clears throat> well, the reply of the pastors was to, we just kicked him out. He just said, go back to your sheep in Lucerne. He said, what do you, who do you think you are coming in here talking to us like this? I mean, we are the elite of the elite. We are the pastors of the community. Turn with me to the book of Amos, where the actual truth will unfold that there is no rancher in Lucerne Valley that came and talked to the pastors this week. He'd already done it in the book of Amos. Book of Amos. Yeah, I know you're going Matthew, Mark, Luke, Amos. You're trying to find it. It's after the book of Joel. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. By the way, they found the remains of that earthquake and they date it to exactly this period. You know. But understand, just technically speaking, so we don't miss this piece, I think it's important that it says two years before an earthquake. How do you write something down two years before it happens? Well, that's not the case. The case is that Amos was the first of what's called the writing prophets. Up until this time, the prophets just announced everything verbally. It was captured as could be by the Spirit of the Lord and jotted down for us. But Amos actually wrote his down. and He was the first of those who wrote as a prophet. So he could have gone and announced his prophecies and then come home to Tekoa and wrote them down. But he knew that it, by the time they were written down, it was two years before the earthquake. Amos testifies of himself in chapter 7, in verse 14, and I've picked off way too much to preach on this morning. I have to tell you that I'd like to preach the whole book of Amos today, and I might get through most of it. But in case I don't, this is the point in Amos where the high priest in Israel in verse 10 says, Then Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent to Jeroboam king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is unable to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive from their own land. This was part of the prophecy, that the, the king of Israel would die and the whole nation would go into captivity. And Amaziah or, is the uh, priest, and he's He's the religious leader of Israel, and he's saying, this guy, we can't bear his words. He's from Judah anyway. He's from across the border south of us. He's from Lucerne Valley. Are you kidding? What good could come from, you know, okay. There's a lot of good in Lucerne Valley. And then Amaziah said to Amos, go, you seer, flee to the land of Judah. There eat bread and there prophesy, but never again prophesy at Bethel. For it is the king's sanctuary, and it's the royal residence. When I said that the local pastors, and don't spread that story. That's not a true story. There was no Lucerne guy. There was no pastor's meeting. I was just trying to draw the picture for you and elicit some responses, which you were very good at. 
and I'm glad for. High priest says, this is the word of the Lord. You're just a sheep herder, man. What do you know? I'm the high priest. Get out of Dodge. Amos' response, verse 14, he says to the high priest, I was no prophet, nor was I a son of a prophet. I was a sheep breeder, a tender of sycamore fruit. And then the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel, and do not spout against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, and he continues to prophesy. Your wife will be a harlot in the city. Your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be divided in, by survey line. You will die in a defiled land, and Israel shall surely be led away captive from his own land. This sheep breeder, minding his own sheep, minding his own business, and the Lord starts to speak to him. He's about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. He's in Judah. This is during the time of a divided kingdom where you know, there are different nations around that have gathered, done lots of things they shouldn't have done, and I, I'm, trying, I'm stumbling because I don't want to fall off into the history lesson. Sorry. And geography, but it's all there. And the Lord begins to speak to him and give him visions, and then he says, go to Israel and tell them. He had to travel at least 10 miles to Jerusalem, and then another 10, 15 miles north of that to Bethel. Bethel stood for the, means the house of God. It was the central worship center where they were doing all kinds of things wrong. They were Worshiping, and they were bringing their sacrifices, and they were having a great old time. And in chapter 4, verse 4, and I'm going to give you Amos very much out of order today, I'm sure. It was said, Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days or three years. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Proclaim and announce the free will offerings. For this you love, you children of Israel, says the Lord God. God is actually being sarcastic here. He's saying, the announcement used to be, come, let's gather and worship. Come, bring your offerings to the Lord and let's worship before him. Come, let's gather and bow at his feet and enjoy his presence. Pray for his blessing upon our nation. But at this point in time, they were saying, hey, come on down and let's sin together. Come on down, let's, let's oppress the poor. Come on down, let's develop our technology to the point where we gather and we obtain and we control the trade routes. And the rich will get richer and the poor will get poorer. And we will oppress them. Amos starts out by saying in verse 2, chapter 1, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, the pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. These words don't mean a lot to us because we're not sheep herders. And most of us have never been on Mount Carmel. Anybody ever been there? It's a stretch of high mountain ranges that at this point was lush with forests and vegetation and beauty. Amos is saying, when God roars out of Jerusalem, when God speaks like he's about to speak, it'll knock the trees off of Mount Carmel. 
it'll level the grazing fields of the shepherd. There's not going to be much left when he's done talking because this is, as Susan pointed out, a message of judgment. Thus says the Lord, verse 3, for three transgressions of Damascus end for four. This is a particular style of writing, a particular style of speaking that says, for this and even more, used numerically speaking. It means there's even more after that. It's not just limited to these, but these three and four. And there are additional accusations. You know, this sheep breeder was not just a dumb shepherd. This is all we know about him, but by his writing style, we know he was educated. We know he was a brilliant man, and we know that he was in touch with God. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron. But I will send a fire into the house of Hazael, which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. I will also break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the valley of Avon and the one who holds the scepter from Beth Eden, the house of Eden. The people of Syria shall go to cap- go captive to cure, says the Lord. Let me ask you a question. Just as much as you know about God and his word, do you think that happened? Yeah, it happened. <laughs> it happened. You're speaking to Damascus. I, I had a picture. You have them in the back of your Bible, perhaps, if your Bible's like mine. Uh, and you've used it for a while, you can actually pull the maps out, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> Sewn them in twice, they still come out. Here's your PowerPoint for this morning. Right? Look well. He speaks first to Damascus, the northeastern surrounding nation of Israel. Next, for three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, he speaks to Philistia, which is now the southwest of Israel. I will not turn away its punishment because they took captive the whole captivity and delivered them to Eden. Edom. But I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, which shall devour its palaces. I will cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. These are capital cities where the scepter was held for the leadership. I'm going to cut them off. He's naming the nation. He's bringing it right down to the capital city and the central point where they worshiped where they had their idolatry practices. I'm going to send a fire and devour devour its palaces. I will cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. For three transgressions of Tyre and for four, now he moves to the north on your side of the map, to the uh, northwest of Israel. So he started here. Across the nation, spoke down here. Now he's coming up to the northwest. I will not turn away its punishment because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom. They didn't remember the covenant of brotherhood. These were covenant breakers. I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, which was the city on the coast of Phoenicia. It will devour its palaces. For three transgressions of Edom and for four. Now Edom is the other corner on your map. It's down here, southeast. I will not turn its punishment away because he pursued his brother with the sword, cast off all pity. His anger tore perpetually. He kept his wrath forever. I will send a fire upon Teman, which shall devour the palaces of Bozrah. 
for three transgressions of the people of Ammon, just north of Edom. They ripped open women with child in Gilead that they might enlarge their territory. And I don't know if you'll recall this, and I didn't look it up, but not long ago, within the last few months, we received a report from the Middle East of a nation that was killing its own people to enlarge its own borders. This Amos guy is kind of fresh on our scene today is what I want us to see. I'll kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah and devour its palaces amid shouting in the day of battle, a tempest in the day of whirlwind. Their king shall go into captivity, he and his princes together, says the Lord. Again, I ask you, do you think it happened? Yes, it did. For three transgressions of Moab and for four. Moab sits right between Edom, Edom and Ammon on the east side of Israel. I will not turn away its punishment because they burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. I'll send a fire on Moab and it will devour the palaces of Kiriath. Moab shall die with tumult, with shouting and trumpet sound. I will cut off the judge from its midst and slay all its princes with him, says the Lord. Boy, Pastor Jeff, we're sure glad you brought such an encouraging message today. Uh, if you know me, this isn't my line of work, really, is it? Preaching, yes. This kind of judgment message is not my forte. Now he starts hemming in. What's, what's God doing in these prophecies? What is he doing in these judgments? Israel's his focal point. And he starts up here, and then he moves. He, I should, for the recording, my apologies for you listening on CD or online. He starts in the northeast, and then he moves to the southwest, and then he moves north to the northwest, and then he moves south to the southeast, and then he moves to the middle of the geographic landscape and speaks to that nation. Then he moves a little south again and speaks to that one, and he has hemmed in Israel. And he has said, I am judging the nations that have fouled against one another and against you. Up until this point, anybody listening might have said, man, this is good. God is nailing our enemies, right? And then he says, for three transgressions of Judah and for four. And the heat's coming now. It's coming right into the city and the land of God. Because now the judgment is different. Because they have despised the law of the Lord and haven't kept his commandments, their lies lead them astray, lies which their fathers followed. But I will send a fire upon Judah, and it will devour the palaces of Jerusalem. He was judging the nations for warring between themselves and damaging themselves and attacking one another and breaking covenant with their brothers. But when he comes down to his own people, he says, it's because you've forsaken my ways. And then he comes to the heart of the matter, the center of the bullseye for three transgressions of Israel and for four. And remember, this sheep breeder left his home in Tekoa, traveling some 20 to 30 miles north, just crossed the line that separated Israel and Judah. There was a border there, just across the line, into their worship center, and began to announce these things in Israel. I will not turn away Israel's punishment, 
because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. They pant after the dust of the earth which is on the head of the poor. The picture in this verse is they look to tread down the dust under their feet and that dust is upon the head of the poor. They're trampling the poor into the ground. And they pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go into the same girl to defile my holy name. They lie down by every altar on clothes taken in pledge and they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. And then he rehearses, but it was I, God, who destroyed the Amorite before you, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was as strong as the oaks, yet I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt. I led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons as prophets, and some of your young men as Nazarites. Isn't it so, O you children of Israel, says the Lord? But you, you gave the Nazarites wine to drink, and you commanded the prophets, saying, Do not prophesy. Behold, I'm weighed down by you, as a cart full of sheaves is weighed down. Therefore, Flight shall perish from the swift. The strong shall not strengthen his power, nor shall the mighty deliver himself. He shall not stand who handles the bow. The swift of foot shall not escape, nor shall he who rides a horse deliver himself. The most courageous men of might shall flee naked in that day, says the Lord. I feel the pressure just reading these words. And if we were to take the time to look it up and follow all the history of what took place and how all of these words came to pass, we would be a little bit more shaken because, as we sang earlier, we we stand in the presence of a holy God. He is also just and righteous. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. This is a father who loves his children. This is not some big, mean, angry God who's looking to smoke a nation. His heart is broken. I made covenant with you of all the families of the earth. I chose you. I went into covenant relationship with you. I gave you my laws. I gave you my ways. I showed you how to do it. I gave you leaders. I gave you some Nazarites who were under oath not to drink, not to cut their hair, but to be holy before the Lord. I gave you prophets to speak to you the direction you should go. And what did you do in response to my love? You said, let's let the Nazarites have something to drink and ruin them. And let's say to the prophets, Don't prophesy to us. Rhetorical questions continue in verse 3. Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Answer me whatever you think the answer is. One word, yes or no. Here we go. Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Will a young lion cry out 
of his den if he has caught nothing? You're kind of hesitant. Will a bird fall into a snare on the earth where there's no trap for it? Will a snare spring up from the earth if it's caught nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will, the, will not the people be afraid? Trick question. Now the answer is yes. If there's a calamity in the city, will not the Lord have done it? Yes. Key verse for us this morning, verse 7. Surely the Lord God does nothing. And I'm not speaking to Mrs. Hasty. Surely. <laughs> speaking to all of us. You can listen in too, surely. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? This is Amos's plight. The lion's roared. I can't hold it back. God has spoken. I must say what he's told me to speak. What would we have done if this sheep breeder from Lucerne had showed up just from 10 miles away to tell us we were all under the judgment of God. We said, well, who are you? Uh-huh. And I'm, I, I have to tell you, I think I've spent enough time with the local guys that lead the congregations. We might have failed. We might just have failed. We might have said, just take your little dirty robe there and go back to Lucerne. We don't need to hear this from you. We are the spiritual leaders of the community. Listen, God sends his prophets into the world to speak life to us, to speak truth to us. But right now, if you're listening to the cacophony of what's being spoken around the world, it's hard to tell who really is God and who isn't, is it not? Isn't it difficult? I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying it's difficult. You listen to one stream and it says this, and you listen to a different stream and they say this, and... These guys over here saying we ought to get on our faces and repent. These guys over here saying we ought to sing our way into heaven. And there, there are these polar differences that are taking place in the kingdom of God on the earth today. I'm not here to tell you that I'm the one with the answers either. I'm not here to say that I am the sheep herder from Lucerne Valley. I'm just saying that we have examples in the word of how truth penetrates our heart. And those things being said around the world must be backed up with the word of God. They must be in the flow of the Holy Spirit and in agreement with his word and his ways. We live in some parallel times. Let me read to you. If you happen to have a Spirit-filled life Bible, you can actually turn to this page page 1285, the introduction to the book of Amos. Listen to this. It says, this is the background. And, and I didn't take time. I wanted to read this as though it were, a, I was going to open a newspaper and have this hiding behind and just read it like it was in the newspaper. In the middle of the 8th century B.C., or excuse me, the middle of the 8th century B.C. was a time of great prosperity for both Israel and Judah. Under Jeroboam, Israel had, gained, had again gained control of the international trade routes, the king's highway through Transjordan, and the way of the sea through the Jezreel Valley and along the coastal plain. 
according to Second Kings 14.25, he restored the borders of Israel from Libo Hamath in the north to the Sea of the Arabah, the Dead Sea in the south. Judah under Uzziah regained Elath, which is the seaport on the Gulf of Aqaba, and expanded to the southwest at the expense of the Philistines. Israel and Judah had reached new political and military heights, but the religious situation was at an all-time low. Idolatry was rampant. The rich were living in luxury while the poor were oppressed. There was widespread immorality, and the judicial system was corrupt. The people interpreted their prosperity as a sign of God's blessing on them, Amos's task was to deliver the message that God was displeased with the nation. His patience was exhausted. Punishment was inevitable. The nation would be destroyed unless there was a change of heart, a change that would, quote, let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream, which is in chapter 5, verse 24. I'm not sure Amos was excited about his assignment. I don't know if maybe he was. Maybe there was just such a marvelous anointing that came with it that the trip of walking the 20 miles or more to Bethel was just a joy for him, thinking, I can't hardly wait to get there to tell him. I don't know. Questions about his own acceptance? I don't know. I put myself in the shoes of these people when I read the scriptures, and I encourage you to do the same. We're different personalities, but we have to, t- have to stop and think, what must that have been like? to go up there and to announce these things into a king and into a worship center that was filled with idolatry and bad practice, who were performing religion really well, but had left the relationship that was so vital to their life as a nation. And I know that many of you are hearing the parallels that I'm trying to lay out. You know, there are things that we've done in this nation. We we look back and we go, hey, we were founded on those guys that said, let's worship Jesus freely. This whole thing was laid out on the East Coast when they first got here, kneeling down in the sand and praying, dedicating the nation to God. And we have records through history of the writings and the continual rehearsings of our covenant with God. And now we fast forward to 2014 and say, what happened to all that? Where did it go? We're like the covenant breakers we read about in Amos. And how could we expect anything but the same Heavenly Father to look upon us with that same desire and say, I have loved you. I have set you apart. I made you a nation. I prospered you because you called on me. Now you're running off doing whatever you want. You're living like crazy people. Not the whole church, Julie. Not the whole church. Amen. God's on the church. God's in the church. He lives in his people. I agree with you. Thank you for making that point. I believe God's hope is the church, the body of Christ. But even within the body of Christ, we're a little busy. I just read that, and there are a couple of things I'd like to insert here. Now, we spend, in American Christianity, Western Christianity spends about 80 to 90% of all of its giving on itself building more conferences, punching out TV programs, doing uh, CDs and DVDs and teaching, and we just continue to just teach each other over and over and over. There's a conference. I bet you could sign up for a Christian conference every weekend of the year if you had the money and the time to go to all of them. 
Some of them you'd have to do a couple on the weekend. You know, you could do women of faith or promise keepers or this or that or some special speaker's thing, and you could be all over the nation and never get outside of our own borders to reach the, like, 2.5 billion people that are still waiting to hear the gospel. We spend more money as a nation in the pet food aisle. This isn't a joke. This is a fact. We spend more money as a nation in the pet food aisle of our grocery stores than all of the money we send to missions outside of our country. As a nation. But I don't expect any of you to go home right away and, you know, walk your dog. (laughs) (laughs) W-O-K. I mean, what would happen if we actually repented? What what are we going to do? See, that's the thing that I hope would shake us a little this morning. There's a passage here in Amos where it says, strike strike the doorposts until the threshold shakes. This is like Amos' job was to hit it so hard that everything moved. I'm not that kind of a preacher this morning. I'm not going to shout at you and yell at you and tell you to go home and get rid of all your pets and start getting, you know, everybody become preppers. But you know what? I think there's some wisdom in it. I think there's wisdom in being prepared for what could happen in this nation if God was to lift his hand. I recommend to you a book. If you like reading books, it's a novel based on projections. It's called One Second After. Some of you have already read it. But the, it's about the plight of this nation if an electric, electromagnetic pulse weapon was used against us. Hang on, I'm not going too political. Don't get scared. I'm just saying that there have already been studies about the devastation that would happen to this country if an EMP went off above our nation. And I'm not going to give you all the technicalities of an EMP. I probably couldn't anyway. All I can tell you is that if we get the right kind of an electromagnetic pulse in the right place in the atmosphere, it multiplies down to the earth and it wipes out everything electronic. This microphone quits working. The lights go off. Your refrigerator quits running. You're walking home because your car doesn't work if you decide to go home anyway because your refrigerator quit, your food's all spoiled, and the guys that bring it up every other day to staters and bonds are not coming. That's okay. I'll just pull up my cell phone, which is useless, to call for the help I'll never get. I mean, I stood on my back porch this week and just looked out into space. And I thought, what would it look like one second after? Turns us into about the 1700s within a second. Am I trying to scare you? Yes. I'm trying to say we live in parallel times and God will send people like Amos to us and we might not even recognize that guy in his dusty old shepherd's outfit. We might want to get his, you know, could I see your resume, please, before you prophesy that kind of thing to me. (laughs) I tell you what, I got all these pages. I do this every time. I mean, I am halfway down the first page. This is crazy stuff. Oh, my goodness. Well, you're not going to get all this, and no, you can't have my notes. No, you can't have your notes. I knew you were going to ask. 
It wouldn't make sense to anybody but me. Here's how I want to close the service because it's time to close. You believe that? Actually, the clock's wrong. Your clock. You check yours. Seeing how the electricity is still on. Mine says 10:30. This is a. This is such a brief mess. I announced last week that I would speak on Amos and that you could pre-read it. And I hope if you haven't pre-read it, that you'll still read it this week. And look for what God is speaking to you as a believer. Don't get lost in the, the harshness of it. There's harshness there. There are visions that follow. And there are places in here where God announces a vision about judgment. And Amos steps in and says, oh, God, please don't. And God says, okay, I won't do that. I mean, he, he becomes an intercessor. By the way, this is one of the marks of a prophet, is that they'll also be an intercessor. They'll also know how to pray. They don't just get something on the top of their head. I imagine Amos was a praying man. It doesn't tell us that, but he's a prophet. And he stepped in for Israel and said, Oh, God, not that. God said, Okay, I relent. I won't do that. And he gave him another vision. Oh, God, not that. He said, Okay, I won't do that either. He was moving with God. He was moving in the heart and will of God by his intercession and by his prophesying. He was being obedience to his calling. And he was announcing to a nation the judgments, multiple nations. I mean, as we saw in the picture, if you saw it with me, circling Israel and then zeroing right in on his own people, which, by the way, says that God is a universal monarch, right? He is the king of the earth, not just his own people. He's the king of all nations, and he can do whatever he wants to do, right? He's big. If you don't think so, go out in your, in your backyard if you have a nice view at about 2 o'clock in the morning or just before the sun comes up and stare into all those stars. And hear the psalmist saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you visit him? Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It'll take your breath away. And uh, what I'd like to do in closing is maybe a little unusual, maybe a little edgy. Everybody say, I like edgy. I got like four of you that said that. (laughs) I don't like edgy. Edgy makes me nervous. I believe God has some sheep herders around us most of the time if we'll learn how to find them. I think God sends us his prophets to announce things to us and that they'll know how to announce it so we can get it. But there are some of you in this congregation already who sense these kind of things and flow in these kind of things. Maybe it's a little tough for you still. People don't really listen to you yet. Let me assure you this. That's a breath mint because I'm going to pray for people. I don't want to kill anybody. Just pray for them. Amos's ministry, thank you, lasted maybe 10 years. That means if he was among us today, he wouldn't even have time to validate his ministry among us, basically. You know, 10 years is not a lot of time to be known in a community. 
and to be able to speak with authority. His actual ministry was probably the two years before the earthquake. And there's some historical tie-ins there that, that some authors and some students of the history say that it was probably that earthquake that broke a crack in the worship center that caused the sunlight to come down and shine on the king who ended up a leper in rebellion and had to live in solitude the rest of his life. They actually believe that took place, that God's judgment started with the earthquake. And Amos announced it and wrote it down. I told them this two years ahead of time. Things are moving so fast these days that we may not get 10 years lead time. An EMP, just using that one thing. I mean, just, you don't even have to have it be a bomb. Just turn the electricity off to Big Bear. Just turn it off. And then throw in an earthquake and disable all three inroads. And where does it put us? Staters and bonds only carry about two days' worth of food. They truck it in every day, and the trucks aren't coming. Oh, by the way, you can go to your faucet, but nothing much is going to come out because there's no pumps to run the wells. I mean, things go downhill really fast. So there's a, there's a voice calling to us to say, we need to be thinking, we need to be ready. But it's not just about survival, it's about eternity. It's about whether or not people know Jesus before it's too late as well. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to invite you. You're going to have to judge yourself on this. You believe God speaks to you and shows you things, or at least you're sensitive to those kind of signs of the times issues. I want to pray over you this morning that God will give you a place in the body of Christ, that he'll give you a voice that will be heard, and that he'll... If there's something in you that needs to get straightened out so that you can be a voice, that he'll straighten it out. So I want you just to come. I don't expect everybody to be here. This is going to be a full altar. It doesn't tell all of us like that, but there are those that you it touches you. It troubles you. I mean, sometimes you wrestle with it and you go, I don't know what to do with it. I don't have a direct assignment to... Go ahead, guys. Just sit right on the platform here. Just land or something. You don't, you don't really always know how to deliver the goods. Where to put it and who's going to listen. You've already been rejected probably. And uh, people don't want to hear from you much. Yes. Just, I was just seeing Jesus, and he was just walking through the wheat fields with a sickle, and he was just, so I don't know exactly what that means. I don't know if it means a harvest is near. I don't know. I think it's a harvest because if it was a judgment, it'd probably be on fire. But a harvest. We're in the last days when that harvest should take place. I can't say exactly either. He's not telling me, but just in that quickness. Say, if it's wheat and it's ripe and he's cutting it down, then it's a harvest. We need to be involved in that harvest. But these are the kind of things God speaks, signs, wonders, thoughts, insights. 
You go and you study them. You look into them. I read the, I read the executive report this morning on EMPs before I came to church. It's not regular devotional material. But I began to read what would happen in our nation if that took place. It's devastating. We actually lose lives pretty quickly. Think of all the people in hospitals. People who are on electronic devices that are supporting their life. People that have pacemakers and batteries in their bodies. The thing goes off, their batteries quit now. There's no second chance. Those who are dependent go first. And the rest of it gets pretty crazy. What's going to stabilize that moment is the body of Christ. Operating in the two principles that Jesus told us when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And his answer, this is really a great insight, by the way. When, he, when the lawyer said, what's the greatest commandment? The lawyers, the Pharisees, believed there were more important commandments than others. And they had like 800 of these things. And they liked to put them in order so that they had the top ones and they could keep them the best and be the most holy. And so they were trying to deliver this thing to Jesus to get him to stumble. He said, what's the greatest commandment? And he goes, well, let me tell you about that. The greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is like the first, love your neighbor like yourself. On those two hang all of the laws and all of the prophets, Jesus said. And he put it right back in the Pharisee's face. And he said, now what are you doing about that? We have to answer the same question. What are we doing about that? We're going to love God and we're going to love our neighbors. And if things go bad, we're still going to love God and we're still going to love our neighbors. And part of loving our neighbors is hearing truth and announcing truth. So I'm going to pray for these. You pray with me. We want them to be active. Amen? We want them to hear clearly. We want them to give us truth when truth is necessary. And they may need an audience with us from time to time. And we probably ought to listen. Amen? Let's pray. Father, this morning, these are seated before you. These have gathered in front of you in response to this moment. They're saying at least this, Father, that they hear from you, that they see things, they find indicators. They're like the fingertips of the body of Christ touching those things that not everybody feels. And Lord, I know it troubles them at times. God, I just feel them the difficulty that comes with that in their spirit, the wrestling, the wondering, even as Robin just said, am I supposed to even say anything or not? Lord, and oftentimes you don't give them a place to speak, but you call them to a place of deep intercession for people and for countries and for cities and for families. Lord, so I pray that you will strengthen them this morning, that your anointing will not just rest upon them and lift off, but enter them in such a way that they are filled with your spirit and that it becomes clear to them over and over again when you are speaking, what you are speaking, how to put it down on paper, how to announce it to the body of Christ and or to the world around them. Lord, you've given them a heart to receive. They didn't ask for it. You planted it in them. And I pray that you'll give them the the fortitude and the strength and the courage to stand in it and to be our announcers, to be our sheep breeders among us, to be our amoses to tell us when we need to turn left or right, and that you will give the rest of us in the body of Christ a protection for them, a guarding for them. Lord, you will not allow us to reject 
things that come from the heart of God. We pray for them this morning in Jesus' name and look forward to you using them in the body of Christ in this community. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for putting up with me this morning. Thanks for being here. It did get